I'm going to ask you to open up to Joshua chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, open up. We'll read the first nine verses. As you're turning there, we do these seminars every August, once a year, and the idea is that we look at a genre within the Bible. So quick review, what does that word genre mean? Genre means a kind or type of something, and it doesn't have to apply just to Bible or literature. So you could have genres of buildings, which would mean a type of building or architecture. You could have a genre of clothing, so somebody might say 90s casual is a type of clothing. Oh, that guy's wearing something that reminds me of casual clothing in the 90s. And you can have genres of books, which means kinds of books. So last year we looked at, can't remember from here, epistles, Pauline epistles, or letters. Uh, this year we're looking at narrative, and we're going to define that as Old Testament narrative. Is there a narrative in the New Testament? Sure there is, Gospels and Book of Acts. But those tend to be put by themselves. In fact, next year we might look at the Gospels. So this year we're looking at narrative. Joshua chapter 1. Let me read that for you. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong. And courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and courageous, very courageous, being careful to do all according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. Have I not commanded you? And then God says it one more time, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you, wherever you go. Amen? Amen. So open up to your notes. Uh, I'm not going to read this first page to you, but I'll ask that you read that on your own. We've got a great quote here from a Puritan named uh, Charles Simeon. And if I could paraphrase his point, basically his point to pastors that he was training is this. Let the point of the text, the text being text from the Bible, be the point of your sermon. Well, the same advice applies to us. Let the point of the text, 
what the Bible says be the point of your fill in the blank. Discipleship, advice, warning, encouragement to others and to yourself as you preach to yourself. So everything starts with what the point of the text is, not our own agenda. So look at the next page. What we'll do it now is get a brief introduction to the book of Joshua. We're going to call this section zero. So a little preface for five, six, seven minutes before we do lesson one. So first part of this section, 0.1. Authors look at the whole Bible and authors ask the question, is there some kind of unifying or overarching principle or theme to the whole Bible? Which is a great question to ask. So not just what does this verse teach that I'm looking at, nor what does this chapter teach that I'm looking at, but what's the story of the whole Bible? And they come up with two or three answers, but there's overlap between these answers, and one common word that authors come up with is the word kingdom. So God is the king, of course, and this king has a people. He has a place for that people, and he wants that people to sit and enjoy his rule, his sovereign rule over their lives, corporately and individually. So part of what we'll ask this morning is how does Joshua fit into that big picture of the Bible as God being king over a chosen people? Uh, 0.2, some topics and themes in Joshua. Uh, the first bullet point there is place. Joshua is very much about the nation Israel having a place. It's the first time that the nation of Israel has a place they can call their own. Think of the book of Genesis. Patriarchs really don't have a place. They're nomadic. They wander up and down with their flocks, their sheep, their livestock, and the Canaanites are there with them. They don't own property. Uh, in, in Exodus, the Israelites are in Egypt. Man, they certainly don't have a place there. When they wander in the wilderness, do they have a place they can call home their own? Of course not. But finally, in the book of Joshua, they have a place. And along with a place, this term and concept of rest is a key concept in the book of Joshua, one that God's going to talk about again through the rest of Scripture. Second bullet point, Joshua is a lot about God fulfilling promises to the fathers, meaning the fathers of Israel, the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Third bullet point, Joshua is a lot about God's presence. We could do six, seven, eight bullet points off this bullet point. Let me give you two examples. In the book of Joshua... God's presence casts out fear. And that is a fantastic principle to remember. Um, I experience fear several times every year. I want to say several times every month, maybe several times every week from various things on various levels. If I can remember this principle, God's presence casts out fear. And I've got especially scripture memorized. Wow, that's a great way to allow God's spirit to move me out of that position of unhealthy fear. Uh, second, in Joshua, God's presence means that neither Joshua nor the people of Israel operate out of their own strength. And that's another great principle that applies not only corporately, but individually. And then final bullet point here, and these are just four examples. We could have list, listed many more. In the book of Joshua, we realize this 
need to trust God and obey. So stealing some lyrics off a hymn that was written in the late 1800s. Third section, uh, and this is kind of a little aside, a little sidebar or footnote. It's interesting that some commentators think that Joshua is parallel to the book of Acts in the New Testament. How so? Well, there are a couple points of similarity or comparison here. Think about it. Each one of these books immediately follows the first section of each testament. So what is the first section of the New Testament? Well, it's the four Gospels. What immediately follows that book of Acts? What's the first section of the Old Testament? Well, if you studied Bible, you know that that's the books of Moses, called the Pentateuch or the five books, uh, also called the Torah in Judaism or the law. That is the first section, Genesis through Deuteronomy. What immediately follows that, the book of Joshua. Second point of comparison, because the first point was, okay, of course you're going to have a book that follows each of those two sections. Well, Joshua and Acts also share this in common. They're both about God's people spreading out and interacting with unbelievers or pagan people groups. Now, there's a point of contrast here as well as a point of comparison because they do that very differently, don't they? In the book of uh, Joshua, God gives them a geographical territory, the land of Israel, and they're also told to kill people that are within Israel uh, if they don't surrender. In the book of Acts, we're not talking about a specific piece of land as if this acreage is important to God. We're talking about the church, which can exist anywhere and should exist everywhere. And of course, the church isn't out to kill people, but spread the gospel. Another way of moving from comparison to contrast would be saying this. Some authors say that in the Old Testament, the idea is that Israel says to the world, come and see what we've got here. And it's kind of an optional invitation. In other words, God doesn't send Israel to all the nations. Another way of wording that is the book of Jonah, where Jonah does go to a pagan people group, is the exception, not the rule. Whereas New Testament, completely different. Instead of come and see, authors say that the phrase here would be go and tell. And that go and tell is not optional because God wants worshipers from every people group. So some quick points of a comparison and contrast to the book of Acts. Uh, next section. One final way of looking at Joshua as a preface to our lessons this morning is to look at it in relation to other books of the Old Testament. And we should ask that question of any book that we study. How does it relate to the books that came before it? How does it relate to the books that are going to come after it? So I'm going to give you my favorite uh, cross-reference, so to speak, in this whole area. And we could list 100 cross-references here. Here's my favorite one. Both Joshua and Psalms have the same vocabulary, meaning they're talking about the same topics, early on in the book, not only in chapter 1, but early on in chapter 1. So here it is, and you'll see it highlighted in your notes. In Joshua, it happens in verse 8. We're told that the book of the law says, God shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate. There's a verb that's going to get repeated in the book of Psalms. On it day and night. There's a phrase that's going to get repeated in Psalm 1. Day and night. And if you were to search that phrase day and night, it doesn't happen that often in the Old Testament. It's pretty rare. 
so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. That verb to be prosperous also happens in Psalm 1. So let me read you the verse from Psalm 1. We start in verse 2. His delight, this is the good guy as opposed to the bad guy. You've got two different men described in Psalm 1. Is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, should have highlighted that word too, he meditates, there's the same verb, day and night. And then in verse 3, in all that he does, he prospers. So I think it's pretty clear this is intentional. Let me tell you some more evidence as to why I think it's intentional. Um, You may not know this, but the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the Bible of the Jews, has a different arrangement. Now, their Bible starts with Genesis just like ours does, but not every book appears in the same place that it does in a Protestant Bible, an English Bible, a Bible that we'd use in the church. Also, they group books a little bit differently than we do. So all the content is the same. So if I were to bring my Hebrew Bible in here, uh, any verse in my Hebrew Bible you can find in your English Bible and vice versa. Any verse you say, I can find it in my Hebrew Bible. The content of one is, is not even by one verse different than the content of the other, but they're arranged a little bit differently in terms of books. So here's where I want to lead to in that whole idea. We think of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, if I say Samuel, I mean First and Second Samuel, as historical books. In the Jewish canon or collection and organization of their Bible books, they're called prophets. Isn't that interesting? Now, they're not prophets in exactly the same sense as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, which in Judaism are clearly prophets, but they still call them prophets. And the reason is, and one reason, there might be two or three, is that this is history written from a prophetic viewpoint. Very different than the way authors write history in our day. Although I guess maybe now people are acknowledging that all authors put themselves into their history writing. There's going to be biases that come through. Nobody can write objective history. But still, in our day, if someone were writing a history of World War II, you're supposed to not be able to tell if they're Republican, Democrat, or Libertarian, uh, if they're 80 years old or 20 years old, uh, if they're pro-life or pro-choice. You're not supposed to be able to tell those things, right? They're supposed to be relating facts of World War II even if it's from some perspective. I'm going to focus on the foot soldier and not the officers or something along those lines. Not so in the Bible. So we have the narrator coming right out and saying, this king was wicked. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, modern history authors don't say that. People on Facebook postings say that all over the place. You know, this president is as evil as can be. But not people that are writing history and putting that on the New York Times bestseller list as nonfiction. Biblical authors, very, very different. So Joshua is considered a prophet called the former prophets in the Hebrew collection. So here's the point I want to get to. The prophets, which is former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and latter prophets, Isaiah, 
Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the 12 minor prophets. That whole section in the Hebrew or Jewish collection starts with the book of Joshua, which starts with chapter 1, which starts with what? God's word. The third section in the Hebrew collection, a little pause here, I mentioned the first one a few minutes ago, it's the books of Moses or the Torah. So you've got the law, the prophets, third section is called the writings. Guess what book the writings starts with? Book of Psalms. So that third big section, kind of a catch-all section for whatever doesn't fit books of Moses or the prophets, is this writings section, and it starts headed off by, kicked off by, book of Psalms. So you might say, wow, that's pretty cool that prophets and writings starts with a focus on God's word, but the Torah really doesn't. No, it really does. It doesn't in the same way. We don't have a verse in Genesis 1 verse 2 that says meditate on God's law day and night because God's law isn't written. But when you think about it, all of Genesis 1 is about God's word because he's creating through speaking, through his word. So all of that chapter is an elevation of God's word. So a neat parallel there between Joshua, the book of Joshua and the book of Psalms. And then there are a dozen different parallels if you go back to the book immediately before Joshua, which is the book of Deuteronomy. And I've just listed one here of what, again, could have been a dozen different ideas. The one I've listed at the end of Deuteronomy, God says, obey my commandments and don't turn aside from the right hand or from the left. And that from the right or left, when used with God's commands, is not that common in the Old Testament, but that gets repeated in the book of Joshua. All right, preface done, ready for lesson one. Our question here is, how does biblical narrative work? I'm going to skip the first section, ask that you read that on your own. Basically, that's a good quote from Piper, which says that our first task in going to a text of the Bible is to ask questions. Don't come at a text with answers already. Maybe a practical way of wording that would be, if you're studying Joshua chapter 1, your first step should not be, what commentary should I buy? that's on a level that I can understand because I'm going to read the commentary first before going to Joshua. Instead, go to Joshua chapter 1, read that, then maybe read it again, then maybe read it a third time. It's a novel idea. Then a fourth, fifth, sixth time, read it slow, read it fast, memorize a few verses, and then God starts revealing things that he's put in Joshua 1 to your mind and your heart. 1.2, how does Joshua fit into the whole Bible? The quote here that I've given doesn't really answer that question about Joshua, but it's such a great quote, I couldn't resist it. And it's about this idea of studying the Bible as a whole. So I'm going to read that for you word by word. Uh, These two authors say this, Many of us have read the Bible as if it were merely a mosaic of little bits. Theological bits, moral bits, historical critical bits, sermon bits, or devotional bits. But when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, we ignore its divine author's intention to shape our lives through its story. If we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture. 
and it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. Hence, the unity of Scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically, unorth theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious, idol worshipers. I didn't read that last sentence quite right. So if you get what he's saying, read your Bible in a fragmented way, you could be doctrinally correct and yet have a very unhealthy Christian life and growth. Now, if that's a little confusing, I'm not going to pause here. I'd say get that book. You'll see the footnote. I've put it at the end of my lesson in a bibliography and read more in that section. The point is reading the Bible big picture, not just the verse and paragraph and chapter you're in leads to proper spiritual growth and health as well as good doctrine. So third section, what is one key to understanding narrative? So we're going to do something that I hope is a little bit fun and uh, maybe not memorize, but give you a text you could go home and memorize. I'm going to add some gestures to it and learn about narrative, this genre that we're studying this morning. So let me start by asking you guys to all stand up. You will, you need your notes, so have your hand out in front of you. You can put your Bible down. Have that hand out in hand. And just listen to me read through this. So here's what I'm going to have you say with me in a few minutes. But just listen for now. There are three main types of books on the shelf of the Old Testament. And by type of book, what do I mean? Genre, in a real broad sense. So hence the word kind of book. Prose, poetry, and prophecy. You can tell I'm using three Ps to help you remember it. The first kind of book is called prose. Three other names for this are narrative, reading a story, and drama, since narrative has characters and a plot. Three examples of prose are Genesis, Samuel Kings, and Ruth. You might say, pause here, you might say, Ron, that's four, because you said Samuel and Kings. Note the dash between those two words or books. In the Hebrew canon or collection, so before the days of Jesus and during the days of Jesus, this was one scroll. So what we call four books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, was one book for them. Why did we divide it up or the church centuries ago? Because it's so long. It just makes it easier to divide up into four books. The key to understanding prose, or maybe we'd say one important key, is looking for emphasis. This is often found by reading between the lines. So, in a minute I'll have you say that with me, but we're going to put some gestures to this. And I'd recommend if a couple years down the road you're teaching a small group Bible study in your home and you want to teach them about narrative, or you're about to look at a book like Genesis or Joshua or First Kings, you could teach them this and use some gestures. So when we come across three, I'm going to have you hold up three fingers. So do that right now. You're going to kind of have outline in one hand, free hand. Three. There are three types of books on the shelf. Take that free hand and do something flat with it. The shelf of the Old Testament. We're imagining this library. There's three big volumes on it. The first book is called Prose. Three other names for this are narrative, reading a story, I won't have you do a gesture there, but if you had your hands free and you memorized the text, you could do something like a book in front of you with two hands. And drama, this is where you could ask your Bible study, give me some ideas for what drama is. I don't know how to gesture that. 
uh, how would you gesture drama and have them give you some ideas. We'll skip that too. The examples in our little kind of catechism here of genre, we don't have gestures for, we just list them. Three examples are Genesis, Samuel Kings, and Ruth. The key to understanding prose is looking, so give me some gesture for looking. That could be shielding your eyes from the sun, or if you had both hands, it could be some binoculars, but for now, we'll just do the, the hand above our eyebrows thing. For emphasis, this will be hard as you're holding your hand out, but what people usually come up with is taking one hand as a fist and then slamming it into the other hand, an open palm. Looking for emphasis. So you could just hit the air if you wanted if you're holding something in your other hand. This is often found by reading between the lines. So if you have two hands, you can do lines. One, you can do the peace sign on its side and say, we're reading between the lines. By the way, before we do this, what that means is not that we come at the Bible subjectively, we find whatever we want to find in biblical narrative, whatever lessons we think are there. It simply means that authors in biblical narrative often don't communicate directly. So they don't say, say Moses, who is writing the book of Genesis, hey, this is the point I'm trying to make through the story. They give you clues that are in the text and it's an indirect way of teaching. So reading between the lines doesn't mean there's white space, blank space, you come up with whatever you want. It simply means the lessons often aren't direct, as Paul might be in Pauline letters, where he's giving you commands and doctrine, and it's really clear the point that he's trying to make. So say it with me and try your best at doing some gestures. So I know you've got to kind of look at your script here. So say it along with me. There are three main types of books on the shelf called the Old Testament. Prose, poetry, and prophecy. The first kind of book is called prose. Three other names for this are narrative, reading a story, and drama, since prose has characters and a plot. Three examples of prose are Genesis, Samuel Kings, and Ruth. The key to understanding prose is looking for emphasis. This is often found by reading between the lines. Great, you can take a seat. Good job. Section four. The big thing to remember from that little catechism is this. Look for emphasis. We'd say that with any genre of the Bible. Poetry, apocalyptic, gospels, letters. We always look for emphasis. But in narrative, it's found by reading between the lines. That's why we say, man, maybe even more important to read Joshua chapter 1 again and again and again. Because the clues are going to be there in the text. But God doesn't reach out and tell us. Here are the three things I want you to get out of Joshua chapter 1. Section 4, we also ask this question, what mode of narration are we in when we're in a paragraph or a chapter in the book of Joshua? A key difference between narrative, like the book of Joshua, and drama, whether it's live, as in theater or a play, or what we call movies, is that narrative has a narrator. So Moses in the book of Genesis is going to write to us his own thoughts. 
And whoever wrote Joshua is going to do the same thing. So we try to read a story in what we could call 3D, meaning we're going to remember three modes of narration, each of which starts with the letter D. The first is direct, and direct narration is simply a reporting of facts. It goes at a very fast pace, and it goes like this. If we imagine, say, we're in Genesis. Jacob went to Bethel and built an altar there, and then Jacob went to Shechem and, and bought some land. Now, in those 10 or a dozen or 15 words, I might have covered four months of time. Maybe it's four weeks, maybe it's two weeks. But that's a fast pace when one or two verses covers a couple weeks or a couple months. You might say, well, what other way is there of telling a story than a fast pace like that? Well, there are two other ways, and they're right in your chart. The second is called dramatic narrative. So think drama. What does drama have? Lines. Lines that people speak. How do those appear in the book of Joshua? Double quote marks. And usually introduced by Joshua said to the people of Israel. Comma, double quote mark starts. Do you see how this slows the pace down? If you're reading somebody's speech, you're now at kind of, I don't know what we'd call it, real time, you're in the same pace as, roughly the same pace as the person giving that speech. Very, very different than Jacob went to Bethel and built an altar there. Then he went to Shechem and bought some land. And then he went down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. Wow, that could be a whole year. So if you come across double quote marks, you ask the question, why? What's that question in a little bit of a longer format? Why did the person writing the book of Joshua select this speech of God's or Joshua's or someone else to be put in Holy Scripture? After all, Joshua must have given thousands of speeches or conversations or little talks or sentences that didn't get recorded in the book of Joshua, right? We don't have everything Joshua said. So why do we have this particular speech that we come across? Final mode is called description. You could memorize it also as description slash commentary, or just call it description or descriptive narrative. Uh, this is where there's a slower pace. It's not direct narrative. But it's not the slower pace of dramatic narrative. There are no speeches being given. This is, to me, the most interesting mode of narration. This is where the author or the narrator kind of reaches out of the text and talks to us and says something like, by the way, here's a piece of information you need. I'm going to break from my usual storytelling here and add in some piece of information. Or it might be a judgment call. It might be, this is why some people call it commentary. It might be that narrator saying, this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's really reaching out of the text and saying, this is what God thinks of that king. Again, very different than modern history writing. So let's look at an example of that third category in your next section. I'm going to read for you Joshua chapter 15, verse 63. And you don't have to turn there. Let me set the context a little bit here. This is in the middle of going through all 12 tribes and telling them what land or territory, including cities, including pretty small towns or villages, they'll get as their inheritance. So in the middle of a list of real estate 
and cities and towns, this is what we read. Chapter 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah and Jerusalem to this day. That is the day of the author that's writing this. Now that's a great example of descriptive narrative. It's not direct, not a fast pace, it's pretty slow, and it is the author telling us either some piece of information or some judgment call. A little bit of both here if you do that thing of reading between the lines because the Jebusites shouldn't be in Jerusalem. Now, let me give you just maybe a two-minute summary of why this might be significant or one of the reasons why it is significant. If you fast forward to the book of 2 Samuel, and I've written a few things in your notes there. 2 Samuel has three key chapters. They're in a row. They form kind of a trinity of the climax of 2 Samuel, and those are chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is the apex of David's kingdom. In fact, David and his son Solomon is called the golden age of Israel. After David and his son Solomon, they, they gradually lost territory and prestige and a whole bunch of things. Eventually, the temple never regained it, even to this day. It all starts with 2 Samuel 5, 6, and 7. 2 Samuel 5, David captures the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. Really a key thing in this place for God's people. And those three chapters culminate with 2 Samuel 7, which if you read that on your own, is God's covenant with David and his house, his descendants. So hugely important covenant comes at the end of that. In 2 Samuel 5, David is called a shepherd of the people Israel. It's the first time that shepherd is used with a, a human king. Uh, we certainly come across shepherd in the book of Genesis, but it just means a literal sense, a guy taking care of sheep. So there are a whole bunch of important things that happen in 2 Samuel, part of which is set up by the Jebusites not being driven out of the city of Jerusalem in the book of Joshua. So one more example of looking at things in the book of Joshua, your last section here in your notes for lesson one. In Joshua chapter one, verse one, here's what we read. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, here's the beginning of verse two, Moses, my servant, is dead. So if you go home and use Joshua 1 as a little case study, reading it again and again and again, one thing you're going to want to ask is, as I'm looking for emphasis, what are one of the more clear-cut, obvious ways that an author shows emphasis? And the answer to that is repetition. We do the same thing. If Carla wants me to do some project around the house and it's really important to her, and I don't get it the first time she asks me to do it, what's going to happen? Repetition. You know, a week later she'll say, hey, how about that tile project? Can you please do that for me? Maybe this weekend? Oh, yeah, honey, I'm putting on the to-do list. I'll definitely do that. A week goes by and I haven't done it. Repetition again, but, you know, the ante gets up a little, right? I use the story of tile because 
Um, it's a true story. And what happened was, after several months of telling Carl it was on the to-do list, and then telling her I moved it up to the top three of the to-do list, but it still didn't get done, I come home, uh, this is when we lived in Virginia, I come home one Friday, and there's the tile bought, and the grout, and the tools <laughs> all laid out in front of me. And Carla just said very nicely, very lovingly, guess what you're doing tomorrow? <laughs> like, oh man, <laughs> you know, I did all the work, but you get no credit, right? There's no deposit in the love bank of our, of our marriage, right? Because <laughs> she had to remind me for four months and, and get the stuff herself. Said, man, if I only would have done that two months ago, it would have been, oh, I love you so much for doing this. <laughs> so look for repetition. Uh, as I read those first nine verses, hopefully a few things came out. Be strong and courageous, I think, was repeated three times. There's a great candidate for concordant searching. Where does that phrase, be strong and courageous, or its opposite, don't be afraid or dismayed, occur elsewhere, both elsewhere in the book of Joshua, if it does, meaning outside of chapter 1, and elsewhere in the whole Bible. Uh, another great candidate in Joshua chapter 1 was God saying he will be with Joshua. That occurred twice in the nine verses we read. Wow, where else? And again, let's say the whole Bible. Do we read about God being with a king or a people and his presence therefore casts out fear? Great thing to look for if you're doing a, a, a one-year read through the Bible. Put it on a list of a few things. Hey, as I read a couple chapters every day, this is one thing I'm going to look for. Is there anything where God's presence casts out fear in this reading for today? The one I want to point out in this last section is the phrase, the servant of the Lord. Moses is given that title at the beginning of the book of Joshua in verse 1. So a great concordance search is going on something like BibleGateway.com. Uh, we've listed a couple online tools at the end of this lesson. And then selecting something like this exact phrase, and then plugging in the servant of the Lord. Maybe you make sure that whatever translation you're searching, that's the wording they use. So they don't use, say, slave instead of servant or bond servant instead of servant. So, but that's easy because you're already in Joshua 1. And if you're in ESV, then you just search in ESV. And you say, this is what I want. Where in the Bible does the phrase, the servant of the Lord, five words in that order appear? And you'll get your list. And then you can ask a follow-up question. Which people are called the servant of the Lord? Who is called the servant of the Lord in the Old Testament? I know Moses is. Is it a title that is frequently used for Moses? I'll tell you the answer to that already. The answer is yes. Here's a great question I want to answer for you. I'll let you do it on your own. Is Joshua ever called the servant of the Lord? He's not here in verse 2 of chapter 1. Or sorry, verse 1. The end of verse 1, that word assistant in the ESV is indeed a different Hebrew word than the word servant. So what's Joshua's title at the beginning of the book of Joshua? He's not the servant of the Lord. He's Moses' assistant or helper. So there's a great question for you to answer. Does Joshua ever get that title? Does Jesus ever get the title, the servant of the Lord? And I'll leave you with this in terms of advice for concordant searching. Remember that when you search for phrases or terms or titles, there might be variants. 
So think about it for a minute. You'll search for the exact phrase, the servant of the Lord. Maybe that's your first search, but it shouldn't be your last one. Why? Because you might have an author starting out a text and using the servant of the Lord as the first uh, wording, but then because in ancient days, just like in modern days, they abbreviate things just like we do, they might abbreviate that. What could an abbreviation be of the servant of the Lord? Well, if God's speaking, it could be my servant. And if a human author is speaking about God, the human author might say, after saying the servant of the Lord, so we know it's Yahweh's servant, the human author might say his servant. So there's a good follow-up search. Hmm, I think maybe I'll also need to search for my servant. And as I look at the context of each, I'm going to skim read to see, is it God speaking? And not Abraham saying, I'm sending my servant off to find a wife for my son. Probably don't want to search for just the word servant because you're going to pull up a thousand hits then, right? And you're going to spend a lot of time looking over just literal uses of the word servant. Again, like Abraham sending his servant to find a wife for his son. So servant of the Lord, great thing to search for. My servant or his servant, you'll have a mix of this title and not this title, literal usages, but still worthwhile. So, important things from this lesson. In narrative, like in all genres, we look for emphasis, but in narrative, it's found by reading between the lines. Does that mean subjective? No, of course not. It means that we look for clues and that narrators do not often come out and tell us, this is the point I want you to get. This is what you should apply. Second big thing out of this lesson, remember the three Ds. Direct narrative, that's pretty fast-paced. Dramatic narrative, that means double quotes. Descriptive narrative, that means the author's reaching out and telling us something, either an additional piece of information or a judgment call. This is good or bad, righteous or wicked. And ask the question, why? Kind of always, always our question. Why did the author switch from direct to dramatic? Or vice versa. The author has given us a whole bunch of speeches in the book of Genesis. Judah gave a speech, and then Reuben gave a speech, and they're all giving speeches about this son Benjamin and what should or shouldn't be done with him. But now the author, Moses, is switching back to direct narrative. Why did he do that? What have we learned from the speeches, and what's coming up in the direct narrative? All right, bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that indeed you have declared all things. It is from your word that in Genesis 1, creation sprang forth. And we get reminded of the importance of your word at the beginning of the prophets, even the beginning of what we call the historical books, written from a prophetic viewpoint, and at the beginning of the book of Psalms. You have stretched out the heavens and the seas and the land and you've breathed within us, within human beings, a spirit, a spirit of life in Genesis 1 and for those of us who believe and trust in the shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you've given us a new spirit, new life, your own spirit, the spirit of Christ. For all these things we thank you. Help us to honor your word knowing that as we do so, we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.